Hi, and welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Brian Chaglinski, joined as always by my amazing co-host, Dr. Josh Israel. Hey, Josh. Hi, Brian. So we had a good interview today. Uh, spoke to John Doyle, Elevate's Chief Financial Officer. What did you take away from today's talk? Yeah, I always love talking to John because he's one of the most calming presences at the entire company of Allidade, which I find to be sometimes very ironic in a chief financial officer, which is a position you imagine to be high stress, very, you know, over caffeinated type of role. But he is always a calming presence. And, you know, you get to the substance of his talk. There's something really interesting where we asked him, what drew you to Allidade? What was it that really drew your attention to this company? And he started with alignment and the idea that there wasn't so many companies are focused on conflict and going to war and who are you fighting against? And so much of Allidade was like, how do we bring together all of the stakeholders in the system that are working under crazy incentives and get them aligned into the same outcome, which is, you know, better care, a better system for doctors and a better healthcare system for society. And that actually tied into our talk on becoming a public benefit corporation and how it really codified that alignment. I feel like you don't get many chief financial officers that are like, what I really liked was how we brought stakeholders together around a central mission. And and that was refreshing to hear, I think. Yeah, a great interview. Some of my favorite interviews that we do for this show are ones where I learn a lot, and this was definitely one of them. So I'm not going to say any more so we can get right to it. We're joined now by John Doyle, Allidade's Chief Financial Officer. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, Josh. Glad to be here. I understand you are recently back from the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, also known as JPM. We have a few questions for you overall on the show, but we'd love to just start we're talking about that. People in the healthcare world always know there's sort of a buzz around that annually. What happens there besides sort of walking through the, the woods, having having mystical ceremonies? <laughs> well, right. The J.P. Morgan event has been a seminal event in the year for healthcare companies now stretching back 40 years, I think. So it's a, it's a longstanding event. And this year, like a lot of other years, attracted thousands of investors and hundreds of companies and the purpose of the event is to bring those groups together to really understand each other better. So companies are trying to understand how investors are thinking about their business, the markets in general, and how they'll be investing over the course of the coming year. Companies hoping, obviously, to get great investors to join them and invest in their business. And then on the investor side, as, you, as you'd imagine, investors are taking the opportunity to become familiar with more companies, to become more familiar with the companies they already know, to compare and contrast models and performance, and find those companies that they believe can grow strongly for many, many years. What investors will say is, I'm looking for compounders, meaning I'm looking for an investment that I can continue to invest more dollars in out of my mutual fund over a long period of time and and see that money grow for five, 10 years or more. So, the event was very successful, I think, this year on both fronts. Yeah, that's great. And I love the longitudinal look at it, right? At 40 years of healthcare investing and how those conversations must have changed just so drastically across the decades. Was there anything that really stuck out to you this year as being unique or different, particularly if it may not have come up quite as often in, in external conversations about the event? Thanks, Brian. Yeah, certainly, certainly the rain. So it was it was pouring buckets. I lived in the Bay Area for 25 years, and, and that was like I'd never seen before. Yeah, you guys just swam to each other. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we were up on the hill, so a lot of up and down Powell Street with the cable car. But yeah, so the event, 
maybe maybe there are things that I can note that folks who didn't attend the event wouldn't be aware of. I don't know that there's anything particularly exceptional in the event itself, but but just to to lay it out. So the event is held at the Westin on Union Square in San Francisco. It's a very old hotel, you know, lots of uh, presidents and luminaries over the years stayed at the hotel. It's it's got a storied history. So that's the first thing is that it's really not set up as a modern location for a conference hotel. So what you will hear from a lot of investors is how long they stood at the elevator banks trying to get up to see companies. But but more seriously, what I what I took away from the conference is that investors are a bit shell-shocked from what went on in 2022. But they've also, as investors do, put that year behind them and they're trying to figure out how to make money for their their investors in 2023. And as they do that, they're trying to find the companies that, while maybe beaten down in the public markets because the markets have been weak overall, nevertheless have a very strong business from a fundamental point of view. So whereas a year ago or two years ago, an investor might have looked just at revenue. How fast are you growing revenue? This year, the questions, that that wouldn't be enough. If you're growing revenue very quickly, but you're losing a lot of money, an investor in this market would would tend to be much less interested in, in that company as against a company that's growing a bit more slowly, but maybe yielding profits and positive cash flows. In an uncertain environment, that's that's just the coin of the realm. And so so that was really what people were focused on at, at, at the event. And it bodes well for for businesses that uh, that you know are are adding fundamental value. And that's what I'll get paid for. And I think it's great for everybody that investors are back to that basis of evaluation. So it sounds like what investors want right now is companies that are that are profitable. Now, do you think that for companies that that can meet that standard, there there is sufficient support and financing? I think it's going to be tough, honestly, Josh. Particularly for companies where the the ultimate profitability of the model is still undetermined. So, what I mean by that is, if you were selling an investment in a restaurant business. There have been a lot of restaurant businesses over the years. Folks know what successful restaurants look like when they get mature. Like, what is the revenue growth trajectory? What kind of margins do they generate? And so if a new restaurant company is losing money, but you're seeing a lot of growth, you're going to have a reasonable degree of confidence saying, okay, yeah, they're losing money now because it's early, but once they've scaled, here's what a successful restaurant chain is going to look like. Contrast that with businesses in healthcare, and this is true in the value-based care space, where many of the companies that are described as physician enablement businesses, for example, Allidade would be in that category, are, are relatively new on the scene. This is not a business model that investors have seen play out before. And so that means that, that if a business, if one of those businesses is losing a lot of money right now, an investor can't can't be confident that losing all of that money is in service of getting to a steady state long term that's going to be highly profitable, and that's the real problem. And so, if if you're in that situation, the importance of of showing either a very short and clear path to profitability, 
or already being profitable is far more important and valuable today than, than it was a year ago. Yeah, it sounds like one of the main things that a lot of these audiences are, are, are looking for is, is reduction of risk and some clarity and some more certainty, especially in a space that's relatively as new as value-based care. To bring it a little bit to where you are today, you joined Allidade just a couple of years ago. What drew you to Allidade? What was it about Allidade that you saw with our model and how the company works that really caught your eye? I love Allidade and I'm glad to have the chance to talk about that. I've been in healthcare for more than 30 years. And, and during that time, I've, I've observed some success and I've observed some, some very difficult situations. And I took some time after my most recent job before I joined Allidade to reflect on those experiences and think about what I might look for in, in my next opportunity. And, and there were a number of things, but from a business model point of view, the number one thing I was looking for was alignment. A business where success wasn't about a war or a battle with, with some other entity or entities, but success was a matter of creating the conditions where everyone we're working with, whether it's health plans or, or providers, physicians, and ultimately patients, are benefiting from what we do. And, and I have to say, I was right to, to, to focus there. And the reason I, I say that personally is that Allidate is growing more quickly than any business that I've been a part of. The financial picture is, is quite bright. And yet, day to day, the tone and feel around the business is, is wonderful. I mean, I, I love everybody that I work with, the interactions we all have, even when there's a tricky challenge to work on, and even when there, whether there's a you know external party on the phone, it's always a collaborative, how are we going to solve this kind of conversation? And I can't tell you how many companies I've been a part of where the job of, of an executive in that business was to figure out how to fight against somebody. And so just as a matter of like, how do you want to live? I much prefer an aligned situation, but, but more importantly, from an investor point of view, that alignment just creates a huge tailwind in the business. And we've certainly seen that. I mean, 23 will be managing, you know, medical spend of more than $20 billion. It's an enormous business. And it's quite remarkable. And it, and it's obviously a function of the great work the company's done, but based on that, that, that really deep, deep alignment. So, John, you mentioned Allied's growth. You mentioned the public markets. I, I understand you have been at four prior companies that did go public, enter the public market or IPO. Can you speak a little bit about what that process is like? What does a company have to do for that to happen? Um, and also, why would a company do that, right? That some companies, it seems like that's the goal. And for other companies, that is a method of, of financing the work they're trying to do. So can you speak to those those things? Yeah. I mean, first, I think really sadly is the word I would use that for some companies, it is the goal, or at least they behave in a way that makes it seem like it's the goal. And I don't think most companies do that. I don't think most management teams think about it that way, but let's set those aside because I, I think I think investors and good management teams agree that's not the way to think about an IPO. What would ideally drive a public offering for a company is 
the thing is is getting access to the things that really only an IPO can get a company access to at a time when those things are important. So let me say more about what that is. So in contrast to a private company where, as you've seen during your time at Allidade, when you finance the business, you know, you might do a, a, a Series A financing or Series C financing or Series E financing. It's a many month long process. And the dialogue with investors is very detailed. You're creating enormous amounts of, of data that investors are digging through for months and you're asking lots of very detailed questions. And that creates a relatively illiquid situation. Like if I need, if I want to make an investment as a business and I want to raise money from investors, it's not always true, but as a private company, it typically takes a long time. And there's a cap effectively not a specific dollar amount, but, that, but as an order of magnitude, there's a relatively low cap on what you're typically going to be able to raise as a as a private company. We've seen exceptions of that to that in the last ten years, certainly, but as a rule, I think that's the case. So this makes the private markets again relatively slow and relatively limited in the amounts of capital a company can access. As a business grows. One of the byproducts of a successful company is that it's creating new investment opportunities all the time. And that's been the case at Allidate. And, and for example, we make it into it. We, we acquired a business last year that's been a very successful acquisition for the company. Um, but that was at a level where we could fund it from the capital that we had already raised from investors. And, and so the length of time it takes to raise money and the limitations on the amounts weren't an issue. But as we go forward, Allidate is, is a business that's getting bigger and bigger, and you want to be able to allocate more capital to bigger opportunities. And so one of the reasons you might go public is to get access to larger amounts of capital. On top of that, the public markets, because you are continually reporting information to investors and keeping the market up to date as a public company, it's required that you're reporting you know, at least each quarter. You can raise money over a weekend in some cases or a couple of days, and it can be you know, larger amounts of money than, than you could have possibly raised in a long private financing, maybe. And so those two advantages become strategic to a company when you see investment opportunities that require that size and nimbleness. And, and so that would be the right trigger. Other reasons that companies go public can be you know, to get more visibility for a consumer brand. So an IPO in our culture, it tends to get a lot of attention and, and that's you know, one reason people do it. Another reason is that an, that an IPO, and this gets into part of your question, what does a company have to do? An IPO signals to the outside world that a company has reached a certain level of maturity in its operations because to function effectively as a private company, it is very important that your, your business is well controlled and your, your understanding of how your business grows is very deep and your ability to give investors a sense of where the business is headed is well developed. And in a company that is not public, it is difficult to tell whether those things are true. Whereas in a public company, it's quite obvious if those things are not, not true. So those are some reasons that people go public. Yeah, I love the focus on exactly what this kind of capital raising is going for and having a company that's focused on what you can use that revenue for and that capital for, as opposed to seeing that as an event in itself that's worth working towards, right? It's, it's what are we here at Allidade? I think we talk about this all the time. It's 
how do we make sure that our primary care workforce gets the support that they need to really provide better care to their communities and their patients and everything, every business decision along the way uh, is focused on that. I remember I'm going to quote you back to yourself, so I apologize for that. And I'm probably going to butcher the quote in the process. But you said something really insightful in a meeting once that that I, I come back to often, which is we were talking about the best way to communicate to investors, right? Like, How do you tell the story of what Allidade does to an investor audience in a way that, that resonates? And your advice then was if you're an investor looking at Disney, you don't want to think that Disney is trying to message to investors. You want to see that Disney is creating the best, most engaging content for kids and families and everything else filters down from that. And I think that focus on what are you trying to do? What is your purpose? And, you know, the rest of the process works around that and helps you drive towards that mission greater. I think it's been really impactful and really resonates for a lot of folks around the company. Right. And I think it is an important point to make. I mean, first, first I'll say that in the domain of investor relations, which I know we're familiar with, folks give a lot of thought to how they're going to communicate well to investors. And what you're raising is a, is a different context where I think it's really important to make the distinction that you're highlighting, which is how do we want to position the company broadly in terms of how we talk about the business to our customers and how we talk about the business to potential employees and, and other populations. And it's really in those areas where, it, where if we ask what an investor wants, they distinctly don't want us thinking about what does the investor want. They want us thinking about, you know, what is the ideally the customer going to hear from the business? What are the potential new employees going to hear? Is it going to be in a business an employee wants to work for? Are they going to be excited about the mission? Is it going to be a business that seems to meet a really deep customer need? And are they speaking to the solution to that need in a really profound and compelling way? And so that's where I think companies can get a little bit off track when they start integrating too much of you know, what do investors want to hear into the core messaging plans for the business? It's, that's the distinction I was trying to make. I'm just over here trying to figure out what could Allity do that is as appealing as Splash Mountain? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Josh. I'll give that some thought. We could put a slide in headquarters and sell tickets, maybe. Yeah, it sounds like John being at JPM was already at Splash Mountain. So I don't know if we need to revisit that. Yeah, that is no exaggeration. I don't. It's hard to communicate in words just how, how much rain was coming down there. <clears throat> so, John, as companies are doing that, if the time is right for them, given the, the circumstances you described, that the, the right alignment is there, that it, it furthers their mission, what are some of the practical things a company has to do to, to prepare for that? Right. Well, there are many, and, and companies do these things better or, or worse than others, but there are some general uh, ways that companies prepare for an IPO. I talked about well-controlled operations. So if, if an aspiration is to be able to communicate clearly to investors how a business has performed, and even more importantly, sometimes how we expect it to perform in the future, because ultimately that's what investors are, are buying. Uh, it is very, very difficult to do that if there are not systems and processes in place for controlling and standardizing the way things work in the core parts of the business. 
So for example, in many high growth businesses that are transitioning from a startup environment into a more mature company environment, you're going to see vestiges of, of, you know, the startup ethos, if you will, being scrappy and, you know, hacking things together when you need to get stuff done and brute forcing solutions to problems in ways that don't scale very well, but maybe prove a concept that you want to understand as a startup. You have to transcend those things in the preparation for an IPO if, if you're going to be successful as a public company, meaning the routine has to be routine in your business. If you're still, if you're still doing if you're still running aspects of your core business as bespoke efforts from time to time, you know, each time that you do them, that's a sign that you're not, you're not ready. And so a business like, like ours will look across all of the aspects of our operation and get really clear on which ones are the most critical drivers of our performance and then drill into those processes and organizations and make sure that we are set up to run the business in a predictable way. So that's number one. Number two, a business has to be able to report timely results. And that sounds straightforward. It's actually not. It can be very difficult for companies to prepare valid information for investors on a tight timeline when for years they've not had any of that time pressure and might even be getting an audit done, for example, six months after the end of the year. That just doesn't work anymore as a private company. So there's typically a lot of effort put into things that sound fairly mundane, but, but do take a bunch of work. How fast can we close the books? You know, are we positioned to write scripts for our quarterly investor calls that, that will be accurate and, and clear about the business? So do we have people in an organization, a process for doing that? Controlling that, that financial part of the business would be another part of the process. Another thing you will often see as companies go public is putting leaders and others in place who've seen that that process before. So there are idiosyncrasies that are not intuitive at all to what it's like to go through an IPO. And so if you have some people around the table who've seen it before, that can be helpful. And often those aren't the people who are most helpful building a company when you're private. So it's often the case that you get to a place where you need to bring a few of those people in. So you'll often see, you know, somebody like me brought in, you'll, you'll see a, a legal officer or GC who's had experience taking companies public. And so getting the team set up is another important aspect of, of preparing. And then more transaction focused activities like picking your investment bankers and and meeting with sell-side analysts so that they understand the business and can tell the story to investors when you go public. Activities like that are all part of it as well. And then finally, meeting with public market investors long before you're actually going public so that they can build a sense of you and your business and how you run the business and, and how ready it actually is to, to be a public company gives them the confidence they need to invest at IPO time as against a scenario where they've never met you before and you show up to raise money in an IPO, that, that's really not the way to do it. Another thing that happened at JPM specific to Allidade is we had just announced that the company became a public benefit corporation. And listeners can turn back to our last episode to see, kind of hear from Farzad and from 
the legal team that was helping advise us on that transition, what led to that, how it worked, what it means for other companies in this space. But I'd be really interested in hearing about, John, your perspective on this. I think one of the questions that we hear often in folks who are reporting on this space or talking about that transition to a public benefit corporation is just a simple question. Usually they say, this sounds great. You know, it, it's wonderful that a healthcare company is committing to a public purpose and, a, and a, putting the mission at the center of its work. But what happens when the rubber meets the road and the idea of profit or shareholder value comes in conflict with a public benefit or a public benefit purpose? What would you say to those folks, either specifically about Aldate or more generally about other companies who are looking at becoming PPCs? Love the question. And I, I'm, I'm very pleased that we've taken this step. I think it's a step that many others in healthcare should consider very, very seriously. It does, it does, I think, as you alluded to, go back to the question of alignment. So we talk about, you know, what's good for practices, what's good for patients, what's good for society. And those are North Stars for Allidate and always have been. And so in our case, the public benefit corporation status really formalizes an ethos that has been foundational to the business since it was, since it was begun. And I think a lot of us are at Allidade precisely because of, of those things. And so if you believe, as we do, that acting in the interests of those constituencies is in the best interests of shareholders, it's a little bit like the, the question you had about the way we communicate to investors versus the broader public. Investors want to see a business that is doing the right things to grow and be successful in the way that that business is designed to be successful. And so investors who invest in Allidate as one example, view that alignment as fundamental to our long-term success. When they think about how big this business can become, how profitable this business can become, how much value it can add for our practices and, and patients and ultimately for society, they understand that that alignment is a fundamental piece of it. So there might be cases, and, and for example, I, I would give you one that, that comes to mind. We, we take health equity very seriously at Allidade. And in our work in the community, we sometimes make investments that I think in the near term, and, and so maybe blood, blood pressure control in underserved communities would be an example of this. I think ultimately that is a cost-saving activity, but, but some would argue that, that investments where the primary purpose is a health equity outcome. And we, we look at that program that way. We set a health equity goal when we, when we initiate that program and execute the program. Some would argue, and in some companies, I don't think that, that investment is, is appropriate. So maybe we could use that as an example where, where the interests can become misaligned. At Allidade, we would argue vociferously that actually that work is right at the heart of building the business that we want Allidade to become, not just because it represents who we are, but because the trust that our practices have for us, ultimately that our patients have for, for their practitioners is based on consistently doing the right thing. And if we were unwilling to make investments that resonated that way with physicians, I think we would, we would erode that trust, or at least it wouldn't be what it, what it is, and that would harm the business. And from an investor point of view, it comes down 
ultimately, this is this is a sharp departure from the tone we've just had, but it comes down very specifically to how much money is the business going to make in the long term? Does being a public benefit corporation materially change that outcome? And when they see a business like ours, where the activities that that designation conjures are at the heart of what we do and building the business, I think they're really not concerned about it. So it's, I think, been a very positive change for Allidade. Don Doyle, Chief Financial Officer at Allidade. Thanks for the great conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Brian. Good to see you. This episode was produced by Leanne Horst, Alana Kugan, and Stuart Taylor. You can find more episodes of The ACO Show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and join us next time.